asked uh, her class to use the word fascinate in a sentence, her elementary students. And Molly raised her hand and said, um, well, I've been to a farm, and it was fascinating to see the cute pet sheep. And the teacher said, well, that's a good sentence, but I'm looking for the word fascinate, not fascinating. And then Sally raised her hand, and she said, my family went to see Rock City, and I was fascinated. Close, good sentence, but I'm looking for the word fascinate. And then Johnny raised his hand, and the teacher was a little concerned because in times past, she had been burned by his comments. But she thought, what could he do with the word fascinate? So she called on him, and Johnny said, well, my Aunt Gina has a sweater with 10 buttons, but her boobs are so big she can only fasten eight. <clears throat> so the teacher, whatever. You know how that goes. <laughs> I'm glad you like that. Oh. Okay. Well, it's nothing to do with what we're talking about, as always, but I sometimes can segue, but I don't have one for that. So. Um, I know as you live and years go by and you attend funerals and things like that, you start to wonder about what kind of legacy are you leaving for your family, for your children, your friends, those who knew you, what will they remember most about you? when you're not here. And in our study today, David is at the end of his life, and David recognizes days on earth are coming to an end, and he is concerned about a spiritual legacy. And so we've learned so much from the life of David and the people in his life. He was characterized by humility, and you know what? David really understood that he had no merit in himself, and nor did he deserve God's favor. God promised David that he would establish his throne forever and that God would have the Messiah come into the world through David's descendants. Remember when we started back in January, a long time ago, that I said this was you know, like going on Ancestry.com for Jesus and we're going back and we've been looking at his son David, his ancestor. God chooses to love the unlovely and to forgive the sinner and David had learned these truths so very well. And he composed uh, a short little poem here, the first seven verses of our study today. And in these verses, David is going to give us his legacy uh, before he commends his mighty men in the next following verses. So we begin with verse 1. <clears throat> now, uh, these are the last words of David. Thus said David, the son of Jesse, thus says the Lord, I'm going to put these on. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. These words likely don't represent his words laying in bed before he passed away, but rather his formal or his final literary legacy to Israel. This is not about his human accomplishments or about a description of all he's done and all the money he had and all the power, but rather it's his description of him in relation to his God who made him king in the first place. David identifies himself as the son of Jesse, the anointed of God, the God of Jacob. And his legacy was, as I said, not about power and possessions, but a spiritual one. It is the spirit of the living God that inspired David to compose 73 of 150 psalms in Scripture. And think about the millennial generations that have found comfort through the sweet psalmist of Israel. 
because of what he's written. <clears throat> God himself had designated David to be the ruler in Israel. David was the son of just a common man, Jesse in Bethlehem, but he had made David a poet, a musician, and chose him to be king of Israel. Then David's words are inspired by God. We see this in verses 2 and 3 where he writes, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. So David clearly speaks here of the divine origin of the Psalms that he wrote. You saw in your lesson today the verses that speak of Scripture being inspired. Uh, familiar, 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Peter 1.21, Acts 4.25. <clears throat> and all these verses make it clear that Scripture is God-breathed. It is expressing the very heart and the very words of God to man. And amazing that he could do that without interfering with the personality or literary style of each of the authors who compose Scripture. The God of Jacob is the rock of Israel. And God had spoken to David and through David, and it is God who enabled him to rule righteously in the fear of God. So David had this reverential fear of God that dominated his life. And then we see the blessing of a king chosen by God. <clears throat> Verse 4, And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, like tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. So the Lord commends that the one who rules justly will bring honor to God because God is just. And the one who rules in the fear of God upholds the things that God upholds. And a ruler like this can be compared to these experiences we have on earth. The beauty of the early morning dawn as the new day begins. The warmth of the sun on a morning where there's no clouds. And then the blessing of rain that causes grass to sprout up. All of these things are necessary <clears throat> for the growth of plants, and so it is necessary for a society to have a righteous ruler who exercises justice and mercy. Of course, we realize that the only one who will ever perfectly do that is Jesus when he comes back to reign on earth, David's greater son. But a king who uses authority to honor the Lord is like the bright sun on a cloudless morning and like a clear day after the rain. <clears throat> Truly, is not my house so with God? For he has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secured for all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not indeed make it grow? But the worthless, every one of them, will be thrust away like thorns because they cannot be taken in hand. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they will be completely burned with fire in their place." God had made a covenant with David, and his kingdom and his throne are as ordered and secure as God himself. We make legal documents that, you know, whatever, they're worth something on a piece of paper, but God's truth and God's legal secure order is set with absolute certainty. David has complete and utter confidence in what God has said. He will do what he said. He is convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that the covenant God made with him and his house would be established, just as God said, every detail, every aspect of that covenant, that the Lord had been with David and arranged for him to be king, and all that was to come was secured by God's hand. David has assurance that God will bring about his salvation to a reality. 
It's not surprising then, with that kind of faith, that he's mentioned in the Hall of Fame of Faith in chapter 11 of Hebrews, where we read that many who were by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. What confidence, what security David lived because he believed what God said. So I don't know if that characterizes you. Do those who know you best see in you an absolute rest and confidence in how secure you are in the truth of what God has promised to you? David lived that way. <clears throat> do you have confidence and do you have the peace that your sins are forgiven, that your home is heaven, that knowing your Savior will never leave you, he will never forsake you, no matter how dark the night, that all things are working together for good to make you more like Christ in your character, that he will enable you to do all things he commands you to do because it is Christ who strengthens you, that he's given you a salvation, that you will obtain an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, that will not that was never fade away and it's reserved for you in heaven, protected by the power of God through faith and a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. What incredible security and foundation for living we have in God's promises. And that's true for us. It was true for David. He sought refuge in the shadow of his God's wings. And the same is true for us. It should be true. By contrast from the assurance David had from God, evil men like thorns, will be cast away. Those who oppose God are like the thorns that are dangerous to choke out the growth of things that are good. Divine judgment awaits every person who fails to see that their sin separates them from a holy God. David saw this clearly from young age to old age. People are either for God and they come to him on his terms, or they are against him and they think they can come to him on their terms. God made it clear to Abraham that he would bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel. And David was confident that God would fulfill his promises to his forefather Abraham and to himself. And as the prophet Zechariah says, for he who touches you, Israel, touches the apple of my eye. That's what God says. Now, that's David's legacy that he wants to leave. So I hope that you think about yours, because the people who see you, you rub shoulders with, whether it's in your home, your church, your job, whatever the case, what is it that they see in you? What, what gives you reason and hope and confidence? I hope you're like David and believe in the promises that you know are true. David now switches gears to talk about a recognition for his military men. I did not grow up in a family who was a military family, though my dad and both my brothers served in three different wars in the military. However, many career military men, as the men we're looking at in the rest of this chapter, um, they have served our country at great personal cost, many their own lives, or great injury, great harm. It's certainly not uncommon even in our country to have brave men and women recognized and given awards and Purple Hearts and things of valor and courage. But this next section then is of chapter 23 is really the roster of David's Navy SEALs and Army Rangers and his top men who stood with him. And David wanted them to have distinction and honor as they are listed in these verses. 
and they have names and that represent tremendous achievements. So 37 of David's bravest warriors, these men gave David their undying support, helped him before he was king, helped him at the beginning, and when he was king only in Hebron, and on and on. They were David's elite army, and even though we know little about them, God saw it fitting to include them in his word, which is inspired, so it matters. So David's mighty men and their bravery, and I'm not going to talk about all these men, I'm not going to go into this section at length, uh, because there's a whole other chapter. So these three men are started out, are honored above the rest because they were the top three. They were incredible in their courage. Um, they stood their ground in single combat situations when the rest of the army had fled. Each single-handedly killed large numbers of enemies to Israel and made victories possible. And many of the events of this chapter happened way earlier, as I said, in David's reign, like from back in the time he was in Hebron. And there's cited for us a particular story of David longing for a drink from his favorite well back in Bethlehem. And his men, these three guys, hearing his desire, loved him so much that they sacrificially risked their lives, breaking through a Philistine stronghold in order to meet David's wish and bring him water. Such courage and such sacrifice overwhelmed David so that he poured on the ground this gift as a sacrifice to the Lord. David felt unworthy to even drink what, this, uh, what these men brought to him. The water to him represented the lifeblood of the three brave men who risked their lives, and he only thought he could offer that to God. We meet Abishai and Benaiah are celebrated for all they accomplished, and there's others mentioned specifically in 1 Chronicles 11. And it's likely that the number of David's 30 elite soldiers were added to and replaced as different ones were killed. So the chapter ends with a total of 37. I mean, we know Uriah the Hittite was killed, and many others died and were replaced. So likely 37 is the total. There are generally 30 men who were his elite corps, mighty men, commended for all they have accomplished. So that's all I'm going to talk about the mighty men for now, because we're going to look at the numbering of the people as we finish out our study. So David's sinful decision to take a census is seen in the next chapter, verses 1 through 9. And one might have thought that the book of 2 Samuel would end with, you know, David saying something wonderful on his deathbed and peacefully going off to sleep into the presence of the Lord, or some wonderful achievement at the end of his reign. But instead, God saw fit to end this book with this particular story, uh, where it's a setting for disaster for David and for the people of Israel. Some think this event took place earlier in his reign, but it seems more likely it was towards the end uh, when he's given Solomon instructions about the temple. We've already seen God's divine wrath in our study before when they had three years of famine, and that was due to Saul breaking his treaty with the Gibeonites and killing them. And so God had sent three years of famine. Now we read in verse 1, in light of that, now again the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And that anger of the Lord, it incited David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. So the fact that David wanted to take the census was really, in the bigger picture, God wanting to deal with the sin of the nation of Israel. And we're just really not told exactly what that was. First Chronicles 21 tells us that it was Satan who tempted David to do the census. 
So there was pride and rebellion in the decision to do this, and yet God is the one who permitted Satan to tempt David in order for God to fulfill his plan. So taking his senses was not sinful in and of itself. <clears throat> this likely had more to do with sinful pride, reliance on human uh, army rather than the Lord. But it seems very clear that God directed his anger toward Israel. And so he allowed Satan to tempt David. Uh, and is, David was Israel's representative in this sin. <clears throat> there must have been a great deal of sinful pride going on in the hearts of the people. We're just not told. So we can't read into why God was so angry with not just with the whole nation. God is not responsible for men's sin. People are responsible for the choices they make to sin. <clears throat> Both David and the people had clearly provoked the Lord with their sin. And Satan's not the one who can make somebody sin. He's the one who tempts people to do what's in their heart to want, that they want to do, as was the case with, with Judas. Judas wasn't forced to betray Jesus. Judas had a wicked heart and, and a rebellious heart, and Satan tempted him, and he went through with that plan. Now, specifically, David was interested in the number of his fighting men. How many military guys do I have? He wanted to know the full potential and the full strength of his fighting forces, which could lead then which to, the, obviously, the sin of self-sufficient pride, that the victory in battle is going to be because of these guys instead of the Lord. One author put it this way, the meaning is that God permitted Satan thus to move David in order that through this act an opportunity might arise for the punishment of Israel's sin. So David ordered Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go about now through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and register the people that I may know the number of people. But Joab said to the king, now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my Lord the king still see, which that's what makes me think he was older. But why does my Lord the king delight in this thing? The king, king's word prevailed, though, against Joab. So Joab the, and the commander of the armies went out from the presence of the king to register the people of Israel. So Joab, you know, this, this <laughs> brutal military murdering kind of guy, I don't know, he got it that this wasn't a good thing to do. Um, and when this is the guy telling you you shouldn't do that, you'd think David would have taken pause. He hopes, tells David, I, you know, let's just trust the Lord that he'll increase the number of troops you have over and over. He's convinced that to do this census will bring a terrible guilt on the country of Israel. And that's what he said in First Chronicles 21.3. But David simply overrules Joab. So for the next nine months and 20 days, Joab's on a mission with his men traveling out throughout all the land, starting at east of the Jordan in the Reuben territory, then to Gad, then north to Dan, then to Beersheba. It says, and when they had gone about through all the whole land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. First Chronicles gives a larger number of men uh, counted up. Likely that was all of the men. Well, the men here in 2 Samuel we know are specifically valiant warriors who drew the sword. They were already trained military men, 800,000 and 500,000 more in Judah. Then David repents of demanding a census. At least he repented, a little slow on the draw. Now David's heart troubled him after he numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. 
He's such a great example of what repentance and humility looks like. I, you know, so-and-so made me do, and you know all the excuses we have for our sin. If I didn't live with this person, I wouldn't be this way kind of thing. David always admitted his own sin. But now, O oh Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. We don't read about God forbidding a census, but clearly God had communicated that doing this thing was wrong. This was willful rebellion, and David is in deep conviction over his sin. David saw his sin, perhaps his dependence on the human army and its numbers rather than on God. And David asked the Lord to take away his sin, and he admits he's been a fool to do this thing. David didn't need a prophet to come and tell him, you're the man who sinned. He, he got it. He knew it. And he's asking forgiveness. He's very well aware, and he's really shaken by his own disobedience. God called David a man after my own heart because of David's humility, because of David dealing with his sin. David was a sinner just like you and just like me. But his heart was sensitive to his own sin. He repented when he realized he had sinned, and he hated that he grieved God the God he loved. However, God did send a prophet, not to confront David about his sin, but Gad came to bring him a choice of three possible disasters for him to choose. I'm reading through 1 Samuel in my yearly reading, and there was Gad way at the beginning of his whole earthly, uh, I mean, his beginning of his reign, and David rising on the scene. So Gad's been around a long time. And he brings this uh, word from God, seven years of famine, three months of military attack, running for your life, or three days of pestilence. The choices become more severe, even though they get shorter in duration. David knew that God would be more merciful to him than any men chasing him from another country. So he says to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. And so the choice is made, and a pestilence is sent. So the Lord sent pestilence upon Israel, from the morning until the appointed time, and 70,000 men of the people of, from Dan to Beersheba died. Can you even wrap your head around that? This is not a big country. That in three days and three nights, that many people are gone. That number of uh, military men, you know, was cut to way, way less after this unbelievable event. The spread of some unexplainable fatal disease sweeps through Israel, killing tens of thousands throughout the land. In verse 17, we read that in some way David saw, either in a vision or just saw this destroying angel that God sent with this um, infliction of death as a punishment. And he sees the angel and he cries out, It is I who have sinned. It is I who have done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So David's focus is on his own sin and his own guilt, not everybody else's. And it became clear that Jerusalem was going to be spared. This was God's sovereign, sovereign choice and decision to do so. God stopped the judgment before it reached Jerusalem. And then David builds an altar. Once again, the prophet Gad comes and tells David, go erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of the man his name starts with A, uh, the Jebusite. <clears throat> there was no delay in David's obedience. He went immediately and did as he was told. And he purchased the threshing floor from this man, he erected an altar, made an offering to the Lord in order to stop the plague. This man had wanted to just give David the threshing floor. 
and the oxen for the sacrifice. But David's response was, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. Thus the Lord was moved by prayer for the land, and the plague was held back from Israel. First of all here, David demonstrates for us what it so clearly teaches, what we are so clearly taught in the New Testament about sacrificial giving, 2 Corinthians 8 and many other places. Over and over again we are taught in the New Testament that believers are to give generously, even in poverty. Remember how Jesus praised the poor widow who put her half cent in the temple treasury. It was everything that she had. I find this verse very convicting because I think it can be easy to give money and to give even a generous sum, but if it doesn't affect you in any way and is no sacrifice, um, we need to pray about how we give and how much we give. David's obedience resulted in the threat to Israel ending, and notice specifically, in answer to his prayer. Another great truth we see in these last verses is the importance of prayer in obedience. David didn't question Gad. You want me to do what? He just did it. He obeyed. And as David sacrificed his offering to the Lord, the Lord was moved by prayer for the land, and the plague was held back from Jerusalem. In God's sovereign plan for individuals, for each of you, for nations, he has chosen the means of prayer to move and accomplish his will. Isn't that amazing? He is sovereign. He knows all the events, and yet within that, somehow, what we pray is how he moves his hand to do what he does. What an amazing responsibility. That is why prayer has to be such a priority to our lives. Well, as this book closes, we see the importance of where the altar was built. One author put it this way. It's a great quote. At the same site where Abraham once held a knife over his son, David sees the angel of the Lord with the sword ready to plunge into Jerusalem. In both cases, death is averted by sacrifice. The temple is established there as the place where Israel was perpetually reminded that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Death for Isaac and for David's Jerusalem was averted because the sword of divine justice would ultimately find its mark in the Son of God. We shouldn't be surprised that the New Testament begins then with the record in Matthew, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David. I hope you have come to love this David as the Lord loves him. He has taught us so much about doing what is wrong and about doing what is right. The final days of David's life, if you want to read, are found in 1 Kings as Solomon uh, takes his throne. We've seen much in his life, though, in contrast to Saul. Think back when we studied 1 Samuel. Saul never admitted his mistake, always was right, always was disobeying and trying to rationalize away his sin. David is the complete opposite. David is characterized by humility. Not perfect humility, but that was the direction of his life. 
David understood he had no merit in himself that God should love him or choose him to be a king. And as he ran for his life, you know, for years as being hunted down by this crazed Saul who is trying to kill him, he trusted God. God promised to David that he'd establish his throne forever, and he believed that. But David understood that God did all of these things because God chose to, not because David was special or David earned some favor with God. No person can ever earn God's favor or blessing. No one can, that's because no one can make atonement for their own sin. <clears throat> Salvation is by grace through faith. It is the gift of God. David was a man we've seen who kept his promises. Remember, his best friend is dead, and he, he looks up to find his uh, deceased friend's son so he can show kindness to him. <clears throat> David's sins of adultery and murder were so evil and wrong, and his first response, as you recall, was to try to cover it up, try to cover it up, do this plan B, you know, bring the husband home, and all those things failed. But finally, David came to understand that his sin was against God. And the wonderful prayer of repentance that we have in the Psalms is a textbook for us as how we should pray when we're truly repentant over our sin. We wouldn't have that if David hadn't sinned and recorded God's inspired words of repentance and what that should look like in each of our lives. Remember how David was so filled with fear of God and anger towards God when the Ark of the Covenant almost fell out of the wagon? It drove David to study God's word and then to do the right thing the right way. It was the word that corrected David's initial reaction of anger towards God, and it was the word that helped him fear God and determine to obey God and his word the right way. David went through the agony of the death of a baby son. He went through the agony of a rebellious son who grew up to want to kill him. He experienced unjust abuse starting way back with Saul and then Shimei and all the different ones we've seen. He experienced so much pain in this life, but it is as many sorrows in his life that God used to bring us comfort through his scriptures. God chose the sweet psalmist of Israel to write songs that bring us comfort and hope. I hope you've learned much through his life, and when you read a psalm, you have a lot more knowledge of the man who wrote it and the pain he lived when he lived here. I hope you've learned much through his life that you will better appreciate the author of the words of hope like these words. David says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. Wow, aren't we glad for that? nor punished us according to our iniquities. Praise the Lord. This is such good news for each of us, for we are just as grievous to God in our own sins, in our own pride, in our own rebellion, in our own justification for why we can have stinky attitudes. We need to be like David and come humbly in repentance. The same wonderful, merciful God still forgives humble, repentant sinners like us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this study of Second Samuel. It's been hard. It's not been easy. But you have told us that all scripture is God-breathed, and all of it, 
Every jot, every tittle is profitable for doctrine, reproof, and correction, and instruction, and righteousness. It's all been given for us to learn. It is your very breathed out words. And so it is our privilege to have learned um, from a book that wasn't easy. I pray, Lord, that we would be women of prayer, like David, that we would be women of faith, that we would be women of true repentance and keeping short accounts with God. Lord, I pray that we would have absolute confidence in your word and what you say, and that we wouldn't just know it in our heads, but when life deals out all of the pain and heartache, that we would believe in our hearts what we know is true in our heads, and it would affect how we think and the lens in which we view life and how we live it. We thank you for David and all the comfort we have gleaned from him in our own pain, that you allowed him to suffer so that we could benefit. Thank you, Lord, for your word, and I pray you'll strengthen us now as we go our separate ways for the summer months. I pray that each of us will be diligent to not get lazy in spending time in your word when we're not as structured maybe in the summer. Lord, help us to be disciplined in our time in your word as we're apart and bring us all back together safely in the fall. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, ladies, we're going to have... That's okay. Mm-hmm.